Well, um, we're going to do something different than our normal Bible class. So I'm putting pause on the conscience, and we're going to talk about fear instead. So essentially what I'm going to do this morning is to walk you through a little book called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear that I think would be good for everybody to pick up and read. Uh, This guy, John Flavel, People pronounce his last name differently. Some, some people say Flavel, Flavel, but Sinclair Ferguson, the scholar, says Flavel. So that's what I'm going with, because if he says it that way, it's got to be right. Um, so I'm going to just walk you through this book, um, and then we'll maybe have some time for discussion. But I think fear and anxiety is a really big issue uh, in our world, I think, That's probably always been the case, but especially these days, at least in my lifetime, it seems like these last few years have been more fear-inducing than any other. So let me pray, and then we'll start. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for Christians who have gone before us, who have thought about uh, the things that trouble us, and who provide us good guidance that's rooted in your word along the way. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Um. When you think of fear, what do you think of? Or Christians dealing with fear? What are the contexts in which we are fearful? Okay, fear of the unknown. What's going to happen next? All right. Okay, fear of the unknown. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of suffering, yeah. What are some other terms we might use instead of fear? Anxiety? Yeah, I already used that one. But good. Terror? We might specify a fear of man, for example, these sorts of things. But vulnerability? Yeah. So this guy, John Flavel, identifies three kinds of fear. Natural fear, sinful fear, and religious fear. So natural fear is not sinful, but it's always the result of sin or brought about because of sin. Sinful fear is always sinful. And then religious fear is the fear of God, which is not sinful. That's righteous. And it's the right kind of fear that theoretically dispels all other fears. But when he talks about natural fear, he just notes that everyone experiences natural fear And he just says it's a natural agitation of the mind that arises when we perceive approaching evil or impending danger. So when we sense that something bad or wrong is about to happen, we generally have an instinct of fear. And when that instinct of fear is in proportion to the evil that we sense, it's an appropriate natural fear. Uh, So this he doesn't use this analogy because there weren't cars when he was around. But when, when a car goes flying by you and you step back, that's natural fear doing its job. It's preserving your life. So natural fear can be really good. God uses natural fear to preserve us. All right, So it, it saves our life. Um, when you're laying in your bed and you remember, I forgot to lock the door, and you hear some rustling outside and you get that impulse of fear and you run downstairs with your bat or whatever and you lock the door that that's a natural fear you see both of those natural fears though are a consequence of evil or sin even though you're not sinning by having the fear so the careless driver 
who's not taking thought for other people's life. That's a sinful way of operating. Um, the person who's like trying to break into your home. Well, your fear is a consequence of sin, even though it's not of your own sin. And that fear is actually used to protect you. So do you see how natural fear is good for your own protection? He also says that natural fear is good because it curbs evil. So there's a natural fear of punishment that we have. Well, that's, a, that's good because it helps restrain evil when um, we would otherwise do evil. So we might want to steal something, but we're afraid of getting caught. So fear keeps us from sinning. Uh, but you see how that natural fear is still a consequence of sin. It's still a result of sin, sin not yet committed, and it actually restrains sin. So God uses natural fear to preserve us and to restrain evil. But then there's sinful fear. Sinful fear um, is always sinful. You know, it's the result of sin, but it's also driven by our own sinfulness. He, he points out that it arises from unbelief, an unworthy distrust of God. So there's a certain kind of fear that arises out of a lack of trust in God. Uh, you lack faith, and so you're fearful. And this is what we'll talk about primarily today. Um, but it, it's arising out of unbelief, and it's in excess. Okay, so our, when our fear exceeds its merit or its cause, well, then that's when we move from maybe a natural fear to a sinful fear. Um, so every shadow that flickers makes you freak out. Well, well, that's not just a natural fear, but that's fear that exceeds um, its cause. And Flavel says that's a sinful fear. One of the tests that he gives us is when, when our reasoning is working properly. So fear displaces reason. When reason is working properly, if we can laugh at the thing we were afraid of, then we had fear that wasn't commensurate with its cause. So um, when you're hearing a noise outside and you're afraid someone's coming in to murder you and you're freaking out all night, and then you go outside and you see that it was a raccoon that knocked over your garbage can, and, and you realize, oh, I thought someone was trying to murder me. Uh, you realize, oh, my fear was not commensurate with its cause. It was out of proportion, and it moves from being natural to sinful because it becomes disabling. Uh, so it's inordinate, it's excessive, and he suggests that the reason it's sinful is not just because it's disproportionate, but because it assigns power to a creature that belongs to God alone. Um, so when we begin to give people and things a power over us that only God should have, our fear of that thing uh, is no longer proportionate, it's no longer natural, it's sinful. Um, we'll talk about that more as we go. Um, and then he talks about religious fear. So we have natural fear, sinful fear, and religious fear. And he says that this is the chief ornament of the soul. It's beauty and perfection, not its unhappiness or sin. So natural fear is a pure and simple passion of the soul. Sinful fear is the disordered and corrupt passion of the soul. But the awful filial or childlike toward God fear is a natural passion sanctified, changed, and baptized into the name and nature of spiritual grace. And it's the natural antidote to sinful fear. So he says your fear of God is not natural. It can only come from God, and it's the antidote to all other fears. Um, does this make sense, his outlining of our three fears? 
Okay. So when, when you think about your fears, start to categorize them. All right. Yeah, Tyler. Antidote to sinful fear. Um, so, yeah, so when it comes to natural fear, the fear of God is the antidote to a disproportionate natural fear that becomes sinful. And it preserves us beyond the confines of natural fear. So natural fear does save our lives when that car is rushing by and we jump back. But there are situations where Christians face um, truly fearful encounters that God calls them to walk through, even though natural fear would tell them to back away. So he's going to talk a lot about Christians who were persecuted, tormented, um, who were executed. Well, there's a natural fear of being persecuted. But fear of God allows you to, to give him power over natural fear. The natural fear that normally should pull you away from the executioner's acts allows you to stay there. So does, it, does that make sense? Okay. So sometimes we're, we're called to experience pain that natural fear would draw us away from because our fear of God calls us to remain there. But that's not all the time. If that were all the time, we'd be all dead very quickly, right? God, God doesn't want us to die in every possible situation. He doesn't want us to experience pain without cause. But religious fear, righteous fear, allows us to experience pain when it's involving the, the cost of discipleship. So he, he wants to point out, as I've already said, that God uses natural fear. He says that God also uses sinful fear um, because it restrains evil and it puts us in a state of timidity that allows fear of God to enter. Um, so if we are just bold and boasting in our arrogance and we have no fear, um, the fear of God never grasps us. So he says that sometimes even sinful fear God uses to produce fruit that allows us to gain a righteous or religious fear. Um, so not all anxiety is bad. And I think a brief pause for reflection on that is um, anxiety is a huge thing. Fear is a huge thing in our world. And I think that most of us have an impulse to say the best thing to do is to remove that fear or anxiety at all costs. Let's get rid of it. Uh, whether that's through therapy or a medication or something like that, the best thing in any possible circumstance is to remove the fear as quickly as possible, to get rid of the anxiety. Now, sometimes I think that is the right step forward. We need to do something therapeutic or, or medical to help out with this. But I think we waste our fears sometimes, and we don't allow God to use our fear, natural or sinful, or in, and then we have no category for a religious fear or a fear of God. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say here is when you experience fear and anxiety, the best thing maybe is not to allow that to get taken away through a therapeutic measure, but to understand what God uses that anxiety and fear to do. Um, I don't think, though, that that's a decision that any of us can make on our own. You know, I think that's a decision that should be made within the community of faith, particularly in connection to pastoral counseling. So there are circumstances where people should pursue medical and therapeutic help for anxiety. But 
other times we circumvent what God does through fear and anxiety by too quickly running to those approaches. Does that make sense? I labor on that just because I know a couple of you are in a counseling class and and this is something that might be mentioned at times. Um, But there are sometimes places for both of those angles. So then he gets into the causes of sinful fear. Okay, so, so what causes us to be fearful? He starts by saying that ignorance is a cause of sinful fear. We're ignorant of God. We don't know God's power. We don't know God's um, love for us. We don't know his control. He says that if we thoroughly understand and believe what power is in God's hand to defend us, what tenderness is in his heart to help us, and what faithfulness is in his promises, our hearts will be calm, our courage will grow stronger, and our fear will grow weaker. Knowing God his promises, his love, and his faithfulness uh, is an antidote to fear, but we're ignorant of these things. Uh, so how, how can we grow in our knowledge of these things? This is a more interactive class than usual. This is more book discussion. For a book you haven't read, which is every book discussion that anyone shows up at, right? Yeah, reading the Bible, knowing the promises of God, reflecting on them. So second, so we're ignorant of God, we're ignorant of others. It says we fear people because we do not know them. If we were to understand them better, we would fear them less. We overvalue them, therefore we fear them. I am sure our imagination paints people more dreadful than they are. Isn't that the case? Why, why are we afraid of people? Because we don't know them and we assign them a power that belongs only to God. Uh, Or our fear of the unknown assigns them uh, just this mystery and we project on them our worst fears and their worst motivations. So I think this is especially true when we encounter people very unlike us. We don't know them and so we project our fears upon them. Um, But I think also as we're in a church, sometimes we're like, man, I can't confess my sin to somebody or I can't pursue uh, relationships. And it's because of fear of man, because we don't know the people. And we, if we were ever to get to know them, we think, man, there is nothing to fear here. These people love me. Um, God is working in them to make them more like him. So they, they're loving and faithful in kind. Um, so we fail to consider that people have no power over us except what God gives them from above. So we're ignorant of God, we're ignorant of others. Third, we're ignorant of ourselves. He says we fail to appreciate the relationship that we have in Christ. He says if we were to understand how dear we are to God, our relation to him, our value in his eyes, and how he protects us by his faithful promises and presence, we would not tremble at every appearance of danger. So have you thought about we, that? You, you might be ignorant of your position in Christ. Your status before God is one of his children. And so we're always fearful because we don't think that God has our best interests in mind. We think that we have to take responsibility for that. And only God can. And as much as we might love ourselves, we love ourselves in a disordered way. God is the only one who loves us in the right way. And he loves us more than we could ever love ourselves. He has our best interests in mind. Fourth, he says, we're ignorant of our circumstances. He says that we mistake our dangers and troubles, hence we fear them. 
In particular, we are ignorant of the comforts in them and the escapes from them. There's a vast difference between trouble's outward appearance and inward reality. So what he's saying here is that often what we're afraid of, we, we look at it and from the outside it looks terrifying. But we don't know what's on the inside, what comfort can be found there. So we look at sickness or financial crisis or um, loss of a job or family strife or whatever the case might be, and all we can see is what's on the outside, and we don't know what comfort we might find on the inside. We, we don't understand that when God takes away our financial prosperity, we might find a deeper comfort in him than we've ever known before. We, we don't understand that when a loved one dies, that we'll know the God of all comfort. Uh, do you see what he's saying? We, we're so fearful about all of these potentialities because of what they look like on the outside that we will never experience the, the joy and comfort that comes through hardship. So I like the image that he uses. Now, this is not how we should read the Bible, but it works. He, you, when, when Samson sees the lion, kills the lion, right? I can't remember if he kills him or if he just finds him. I think he kills him. And then later he comes back and there's a pot of honey in the lion. Now, the right way of understanding that text is this guy violated his Nazarite vows as he touched a dead carcass and took sweetness out of it. But Flavel's point is that lion looks terrifying on the outside, but on the inside there's a pot of sweet honey. Uh, so bad hermeneutics, great imagery. We often look at our circumstances and things that are facing us and they look terrifying and our fear drives us away from entering into what God calls us to, and we never know the comfort and the sweetness that's there. Fifth, he says, we're ignorant of the covenant of grace. We're ignorant of the new covenant that we participate in in Christ, where Christ is always with us. Um, the, the assurity, the sureness that we have in any circumstance because of the new covenant that we belong to in Christ. He says we're ignorant of it. So cause number one is ignorance. It says cause number two is guilt. And pretty much he's saying that we often fail to recognize our sinfulness and confess it before God. And so then we blow every situation out of proportion, every interaction out of proportion. Um, we haven't found wholeness and holiness in Christ. So then we can only see ourselves as we are apart from Christ, which is sinful and broken. And then as we engage with other people, we explode everything to where all that we can imagine is this person thinking the worst of us in every interaction we have being the worst thing possible. So he, um, he says that this way of thinking aggravates small matters, blowing them up to the height of the most fatal and destructive evils. Have you ever experienced that? Where, like, you don't see yourself in light of who you are in Christ. So then you just have a, what, you know, anyone else would be able to tell you is a normal conversation with somebody. And then you walk away feeling like that person just analyzed everything about me and everything that I said. And I wasn't funny enough or I wasn't godly enough or I didn't say the right thing or like my clothes were kind of weird so they must not like me. We, we explode everything because we can only see ourselves as ourselves not ourselves being made in Christ. So he says that our guiltiness, when we don't find our pardon in new life in Christ, aggravates every small matter. Um, he says every child becomes a giant. Isn't that how it goes? Every, every human becomes God. 
to us. Um, this is what that proverb gets at when it talks about a, a wicked person flees when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Those, those who know the righteousness that they have in Christ can live boldly instead of living in fear. But if we never come to find that, um, we'll be plagued with this guilt that interprets all doubtful cases in the worst possible sense. It creates fears and terrors out of nothing. That's, that's probably how many of us live more than we'd like to admit. Um, and he's suggesting it's because we haven't understood the new life that we have in Christ. Cause number three is unbelief. It says a guilty conscience is a source of fears, but the sin of unbelief is the real improper cause of most distractions and afflicting fears. To the extent that our souls are empty of faith, they are filled with fears. The weaker the faith, the greater the fear. Unbelief generates fear, and fear strengthens unbelief. So it's like this awful cycle of when we don't live according to faith in God, we live according to fear, and the weaker our faith, the greater our fear, and the greater our fear, the weaker our faith becomes. Um, so we'll, we'll get into this idea of strength and faith in a little bit. Cause number four, he says, is confusion. Um, we're confused about how to interpret the world. We're, we're confused about what's going on around us, and then we linger in that confusion um, instead of resting in the grace and comfort of Christ. Like he says, cause number five is immoderation. He says we have an immoderate love of life and its comforts and conveniences. And because of that, um, we experience more fear. He says that our hearts get so connected to the world, uh, our possessions, our positions, our privileges, our status, that now we have more to be afraid of. We're afraid of losing our beautiful home. We're afraid of losing this relationship that offers us so much. We get so connected to everything that is in the world that we live every day fearing that it will be taken from us. I, I think that's probably what is happening now in like our United States of America. Our health, our finances, our homes, housing market, our stocks, we, we get so affectionate for these things that any bit of trouble in those areas creates a lasting fear in our heart because we've given our hearts over to those things. Now, he's not suggesting that those things are bad. He's suggesting that we can rejoice in them, but that we shouldn't cling to them, that we should be able to let them go. Um, and that, that's a hard place for us to be when he's saying we're immoderate in our living. We, we don't have any sense of moderate engagement with the world or the things in the world that God permits to us. So that if we loved our lives less, we would fear and tremble less. Um, this excessive love of life um, racks and tortures us with 10,000 terrors because everything that we have, we grasp onto. So it's cause number six, a fear is Satan. Because many of our sinful fears flow from Satan's influences on our imaginations. So he's just recognizing there's a real work of Satan that explodes and enlarges these things we're afraid of beyond what they actually are. He suggests that that's a way that um, the devil fights against God's people. Okay, so do these uh, causes of sinful fear, does that resonate with you? I think, I mean, I think the two that resonate the most with me is the ignorance of God's faithfulness, love, promises, paired with 
my ignorance of myself and who I am before God and my ignorance of other people where I blow things out of proportion. Um, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where I walk away and spend the next like three hours like dissecting every word I said and trying to figure out every thought that that person potentially had. And then like, what will our next conversation be then? You know, like what, what are all the things I have to be ready to navigate? That, that one. And then um, I think the overly uh, strong grip on things, like the losing of things, you know, that, that is so easy to fall prey to, um, you know, like, that's that's just what it is. We get told you you should own everything that you want to own. You know, I like nice things. I, I like having tools that produce things in my life that are really enjoyable. And um, when we face financial difficulty, when we face health, like I don't want to be unhealthy. Like I want to never be sick. Um, and that's a that's a like thing that this past week I was like, oh no. Um, every time I get another text of someone's telling me they're sick, like every like weird feeling I have is COVID coming to get me. And it's like, what will I do if I get sick? I have teaching and preaching. You know, of course, it's all godly things. I have my dissertation re report due on October 1st, and I won't get things done on time. And, and we can, even in our fear, um, position it as if it's not that we're fearful because we're going to lose something that makes us comfortable in life easy, but, you know, we won't be able to serve God as well. And sometimes that's true, but I think more often than not, it's, it's not the case. Um, if the stock market crashes, I won't, have more mo I won't have much money to put in the offering plate. When really we're thinking, oh man, I won't have enough money to buy like this next thing that I'm really interested in buying. Um, I, I think these things all ring true for me. He goes on to talk about the effects of sinful fear. Effect number one is distraction. Um, he says, I do not doubt that it is one of the devil's great designs to keep us in continual fear and alarm and to puzzle our heads and hearts with a thousand difficulties, which will probably never come upon us. Even if they do, they will never prove as fatal as we imagine. In this, I would say that social media and news media are the hands and feet of Satan, we might say, to perpetually distract us, to keep us in continual fear and alarm, and to puzzle our heads and hearts with a thousand difficulties which will probably never come upon us. Even if they do, they will never prove as fatal as we imagine. Let that sink in a little bit. How, how much of your heart and life is shaped, you know, I'm, I guess I'm talking about myself here maybe only, but by listening to a news podcast every morning, the first thing I do while I drink a cup of coffee. I, and, and I think Christians can be just as guilty and maybe more guilty of this than anybody. Um, how, how many of you, because you're listening to Albert Moeller, the briefing every single morning, are plagued by fear and by troubles that will never actually come upon you? And if they do, they'll not prove to be as fatal as he says they will be. That's a little hard for us to hear, but I think that's probably where some of us get to, where we can even say, well, I'm listening to a Christian news source or something like that, but we allow these things to plague and trouble us and distract us 
He says that he does this to unfit us for present duties and to destroy our comfort in them. Can you really read the Bible and pray when all you can think about is the next threat to your blank? Bank account, church, life, job. No. I mean, this, this is what happens in those conversations where you blow things out of proportion and you spend the rest of the day analyzing it. You're so distracted that you cannot be fit for the present duties that God puts before you, and it destroys your comfort in them. He says, if the devil can distract our thoughts in, through fears and terrors, he gains advantages over us to our unspeakable loss. Here are three of them. One, he severs us from the freedom and sweetness of communion with God. He severs the soul from the support and relief that it should draw from God's promises and severs us from the comfort that is found in our past experiences and the relief that God's faithfulness and goodness imparted in former straits and dangers. When all we can think about are future fears that may or may not even come to us, we can't think about when God's met us in the past when calamity and hardship has actually come upon us. So effect number one is distraction. Effect number two is deception. When we're fearful, we lie. That, that's the way that this works. Um, and it's not just a good defense mechanism. Sometimes that's a good defense mechanism. You know, if you were in Nazi Germany and a German soldier comes up to you and asks you uh, where your Jewish neighbor is, you might want to lie to that guy. That, you know, that's a good defense mechanism. But often fear drives us to sinfully speak, to lie to lie about who we are, what we've done. Uh, we exaggerate things that have happened in our life, either where we, we are the victim or where we are the victor, where we're the hero. And sometimes it's both, right? So we, we are fearful of other people and their opinions of us. And so we describe our life where we're the hero and the victim. We're never wrong. We always do the right thing. We're always suffering as we're trying to do everything good. And, and then people hurt us over. Um, this shows up in our dreams, you know, or daydreaming where like you're sitting in your cubicle at work and terrorists show up and like somehow you're going to be the hero and the victim where you like save everybody, but also like the terrorist shoots you, but it doesn't hit your heart because you're not going to die, but it hits your like shoulder. You see how like you can make yourself out to be hero and victim. Maybe that's a little bit exaggerated and, and immature way of doing it, but we do that in the rest of our life man, my boss is so awful and somehow I'm like performing the best out of all my coworkers and also I'm the one who's like getting the pay decrease. You see how we can interpret our lives in a way where we're the hero and the victim and it's all deception. Um, vulnerability, um, vulnerability to sin is what he's getting at here. Our fear uh, allows us to enter into unholy partnerships with lesser um, sources of comfort and safety. So this is what Israel was doing when they're saying, okay, God is going to judge us. This is in Isaiah. Um, let's go befriend the Egyptians and find comfort in them. Uh, I think we do this as Christians in our American world where we say, okay, it looks like Christianity's under attack. Let's find pagans who share like one of our values and then sell our souls to them because they're going to be the ones who finally protect us instead of trusting God to protect us. Um, when we're afraid that our financial situation is going to be rough, instead of turning to God 
in prayer and uh, living responsibly. Instead, we say, I want to maintain the kind of comfort I have in my life right now, so I'm going to work 100 hours a week. And we look for someone else to provide us comfort and safety. So we become vulnerable to finding help anywhere other than God. It makes us impatient while waiting for God's time and method of deliverance. Effect number four is cowardice. We're just fearful, cowardly. We, we don't operate um, with confidence in Christ. This is particularly true in the face of uh, boldness for Christ when we're facing persecution. And in our world, it's just social persecution. You know, maybe someone frowns at us or doesn't like us or thinks we're weird. Um, I think one of the negative effects of listening to the news all the time, and maybe even Christian news uh, talkers, is that it makes you feel like if I walk out of the door and anyone knows I'm a Christian, they're going to kill me. Like, my life will be over. Like, we get that kind of level of seriousness and fear over being a Christian because of the way these dumb things are talked about, when in reality it's just, oh, okay, yeah, maybe you will get overlooked at your, like for the VP position at your work because they know you're not flying a rainbow flag, but they're not trying to kill you. Like we, we become so cowardly that um, we don't either don't maintain our biblical convictions or we just hide it as much as we can and we live with a spirit of cowardice wherever we go. Um, that's what he's getting at here. Um, he says, as long as we can profess religion without any great hazard to life, liberty, or estate, we show much zeal in the way of godliness. But when it comes to resisting unto blood, few will assert it openly. Then he goes through this progression of our retreat in our cowardice. Effect number six, he says, is bondage. Sinful fear places people under great bondage of spirit and makes death a thousand times more terrible than intolerable. Um, it makes your financial loss a thousand times more terrible and intolerable. Um, so, so we become in bondage to this fear where it controls everything that we do. Um, he then moves on to give some remedies for sinful fear. So, so sinful fear is bad. Um, it's controlling. Uh, it doesn't lead us to God. It leads us away from God. So what are the remedies? He, he gives a, what he calls rules. They're just ways of thinking and being that help us here. But he gives three cautions. First, he says that only those in Christ are capable of improving. Um, so you can't conquer sinful fear apart from Christ. So these things that he's going to mention are not possible apart from Christ. Second, we must not expect a perfect cure for our fear in this life. So I think this is something that could be really besetting. You could hear, okay, there are 18 rules, things to be thinking about, and it will perfectly get rid of fear. Well, he says that's not the case. We won't perfectly be rid of fear until the final day. If our faith could be perfected, our fear would be perfectly cured. But while there's much weakness in our faith, there will be much strength in our fear. Until our faith is made perfect in Christ, um, on his return and our glorification, we won't be perfectly rid of fear. Then third, he says, we must not think that the bare reading or remembering of the following rules will suffice. We must work them into our hearts through fixed meditation and live in the daily practice of them. He says, it is not the explanation of a case to a physician, nor his written prescription that cures a person. If he ever expects to be healthy, he must take the bitter and nauseous medication, even if he hates it. He must abstain from unhealthy food, even if he loves it. 
So we can hear all of these things that we should be folding into our lives, but if we don't actually do them, they won't do any good. A doctor can diagnose our situation and give us medication, and if we don't take it, we're not going to get any better. Um, I used to get pneumonia all the time as a kid. We lived in this really drafty house with a really moldy basement, and I'd like to be alone, so I'd hang out in the basement by myself, and I'd get pneumonia all the time. And I, I couldn't swallow pills. I just couldn't do it for some reason. And so the doctors would give me this really grainy white medicine that tasted awful. And I would, as any intelligent fifth grader with pneumonia would do, I, as soon as my parents looked away, I would pour that thing out and I wouldn't take my medication and it would just get worse and worse. Well, we can know what the problem is, but if we don't like actually commit to the solution, even if we don't like it, we're not going to get better. And that's what he's trying to say here. So rule number one, he says, study the covenant of grace. And all he's saying here is study the new covenant. Study the new work that God has done in Jesus Christ carefully and thoroughly. God gives himself to be his, their, his people, to be their God. So he says that we should reflect on, meditate on the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Your fears come in the name of man, but your help comes in the name of the Lord. That, that Jesus has come in the name of the Lord. So meditate on the new covenant that we participate in, in Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons we do the Lord's Supper every week. The, the new covenant in his blood that we partake every week is a remedy to our sinful fear. He has like a million subpoints in everything. So this is a good book to read and reflect on because he keeps double-clicking on everything he talks about and goes deeper and deeper. I think it's a good way of helping us learn to meditate and think carefully. So second, consider the misery of sinful fear. Um, just think about how awful it is to be fearful all the time. It's so controlling. It puts us in such bondage that we can't live freely. Um, it's like looking at a drug addict who just can't stop. They're, they're in bondage to that thing, and you just think this person's life would be so much better if they just would stop this. Well, think of our lives. Our lives would be so much better if we would just stop giving in to this sinful fear. Um, number three, prepare for future suffering. How many of us think about future suffering? I don't think many of us do. I think when we think about the future, we think about uh, what we'll talk about in James this morning. Let's go to such and such a town and stay there for such and such a time and sell this and make a profit and our lives will get better. So um, let's like live in this town home for four years while we like keep saving money for a down payment and then we'll sell the town home and we'll have our down payment and then we'll buy our forever home and then we'll have our two kids spaced one and a half years apart and then we'll get our third dog. You know, we only talk about and think about the future of like our, our future joy in the things of this world. We never really think about our future suffering. So read Fox's Book of Martyrs. I mean, I remember coming across that book when I was like in third grade and I would read it at night with a flashlight. It is terrifying, especially when you're in third grade reading at night with a flashlight. But I think we would all do well to think about our future sufferings. It would be good for us to mingle such thoughts as these with all our earthly comforts and enjoyments. So we don't get rid of earthly comfort and enjoyment, but we put them in their right place. So prepare for future suffering by thinking about it, by reading of those who have endured it, by reading the scriptures. 
um, by thinking of our Christ who is well acquainted with grief and then remembering that we're saying we want to be like Jesus. Rule four, commit yourself to God. The way to calm our thoughts is to commit everything to God, to commit everything that's in our hands to God's hands. Do we do that? Do we start our days by committing our day to God? Do we commit our possessions to God, our relationships to God? Committing the matter of your fear to God would give much more ease and quietness. His power, wisdom, faithfulness are greater than anything found in people. Commit that conversation you just had that you're freaking out about to God. Commit the next conversation you're about to have to God. Commit your employment, whatever it is, commit it to God. Um, He gives a warning, you need to commit it in well-doing. In other words, commit the things to God that God would want you to commit to him. So don't say, God caused me to flourish in my sin. No, you can't ask God to um, watch over your sinfulness, right? It's a vain exercise to shelter any cause under his wings unless you can write upon it, arise, O God, and plead thine own cause. That might change the ordering of our lives a little bit so that we can pray that prayer. God, cause me to succeed in this because you will succeed by me succeeding. Those are David's prayers all the time. You know, let me win this battle because this is your battle. Let let me have this conversation go well because it's a conversation where I'm trying to speak your words into someone's life. Uh, these, These are the kinds of prayers we need to make, but we need to put them under God's will and reign. Um, number five, mortify your affections to the, to the world. Um, so put to death your love for the world. Receive everything that is in the world as a gift from God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but don't tie yourself to it. So uh, there's this song. I don't know. I don't even know who did it. Uh, someone gave it to me after a girl broke up with me, and it was really helpful. And I, the lyrics are love tightly and hold loosely. And that's kind of a silly you know, situation. But I think that's like all of life. We can love things. God gives us all good things to enjoy, but we hold them loosely. We mortify our affections to the world. He says, a poor age produced the richest Christians and noblest martyrs. We're freaking out because the stock market isn't great and the Federal Reserve keeps hiking interest rates. But we're reminded here that the best, the most faithful Christians have been in the most poorest parts of the world in the most poorest times. I think that's bad grammar, but I think you get what he's saying. Um, They prized and valued earthly things insofar as they moved them towards heavenly things. If Satan turned them into snares and temptations to deprive them of their better substance in heaven, they could easily slight them and take the spoiling of them joyfully. When the ship is ready to sink in a storm, all hands throw the richest goods overboard. No one thinks it's a pity to cast them away. Reason dictates it's better for these things to perish than for me to perish. Yet some people refuse to cast these things overboard. As a result, they drown in destruction and perdition. That's a good picture of our life. We keep chasing after all of these things that we think will bring us comfort when really they're they're sinking our ship and we need to throw them overboard. And sometimes God throws them overboard for us. Those are the things we're afraid of. If your unmortified heart is overheated with love for them, like Judas's, they will ensnare you. He says to mortify our affections for the things in the world. He says to mortify our affections for your liberty. That's a hard word for us Americans, because that's what, like, every Christian news guy is telling you. Fight for your Christian liberty. 
But he says this, with this analogy. Liberty is a desirable thing to the birds of the air. You can feed them with the richest food, yet they would rather be cold and hungry in their woods than fat and warm in your cages. We're like birds. We fight for our personal freedoms and rights. And we're cold and hungry because we're apart from God's presence. Sometimes God meets us most intimately when we have no liberties. That's what he's saying. As sweet as liberty is, there might be more comfort and sweetness in losing it than keeping it. The prison doors might lock you in, but they cannot lock the comforter out. Have you ever thought about it? That goes against everything that American Christianity teaches. We, we prize, you know, he's not saying this because he lived in the 1600s and this all didn't exist. But, but we say, I have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we elevate what's written in that document over what Christ calls us to day after day. So we live in fear of that being taken away instead of living in the hope of the comforter coming in when we no longer have liberty. Rule number six, imitate faithful saints. So read these books. Read of Christians who have gone before you. Um, Rule number seven, confirm your interest in Christ. In other words, um, tie yourself firmly to Christ. Um, he says a Christian makes two bargains. The first is that conversion, when he exchanges the world for Christ in point of love and estimation. The second is a death, when he parts the world for Christ. Both are rich bargains. So he's talking to people who may be facing like execution for their faith, saying you've made, you're making two bargains. One, when you stay in the world, but you let go of everything in it. The second, when you die for Christ and you leave the world altogether. And both are good bargains. Um, I've got to hurry. Rule eight, keep your conscience pure. In other words, confess your sins. Live righteously before God. He says, once a person obtains a pardon of sin, the favor of God, and a believing view of the coming glory, it's easy to triumph in tribulation. It is as difficult to hinder it as it is to stop a person from laughing when tickled. If you've really given yourself over to Christ, it's as impossible to keep you captured by fear as it is to keep someone from laughing when they're tickled. Isn't that great imagery for a Puritan? Maybe you thought Puritans were like stodgy individuals. All throughout this book, there are some great lines like that. So, I mean, if you have a tweeter, Twitter, you, you can tweet these things out and I think you'll get lots of likes out there. Uh, so he says, how, how do you do this? So make sure your heart is in the awe of God. Uh, uh, preface all that you do and design with prayer. Be more afraid of grieving God and wounding conscience than displeasing your friends in the world. Consider what counsel you would give others if you were in their situation. And when we're living in fear, often we just can't see what's right in front of us. But you can imagine someone else, and you would know exactly what to tell them. Um, Tell that to yourself. Rule number nine, record your experiences of God's faithfulness. Do you ever write that down? Do you ever record your experience of God's faithfulness? Rule number 10, consider Christ's providential kingdom. Pretty much stop building your own kingdom and being afraid of losing what you've built. Instead, build Christ's kingdom because we know that that will never be lost. Rule 11, subject your carnal reasoning to faith. Um, so don't, don't uh, reason as if you know everything God knows. Believe that God knows more than what you know and that he has his glory in your best interest in mind. Then rule number 12, exalt the fear of God in your heart. You must exalt the fear of God in your hearts and let it gain the ascendancy over all other fears. He says this rule encapsulates all the others. Allow God to reign 
on the throne instead of you trying to reign on it. Um, we're at the end of our time. Thanks for listening. Um, this is a great book. You're welcome to borrow my copy. They're also uh, really cheap, so you could pick it up somewhere. All right. Thanks.